Guess what? I'm moving country again. I don't know. Maybe a year. Maybe more. Where's home? Home's everywhere. I'm an expat. Hello! Welcome to 2021 and first of all, Happy New Year. May it be full of projects and some travels, I hope. It's Pauline from Meet the Expats and we're kicking off season two. And today I have Dorit Sampson, author of Sand and Steel, a memoir of longing and finding home. She is going to be sharing with us her experience of moving to Israel, raising her family in a kibbutz, and a difficult journey back to the US. So we're going to be talking a lot about going home and the reverse culture shock. Hello, Doris. How are you? Hi, Pauline. It's so great to be here with you. Thank you for having me. I'm good. Well, thank you. Thank you for reaching out. I feel like this is going to be a very different episode to what we did last year. And I'm excited to, to hear your experience and your story. Yeah, I'm, I'm really grateful that you picked up on the, the different side of it. It's definitely <laughs> the ones that I've listened to on your show. Yeah. So let's start a little bit from the beginning and tell us how you decided to leave New York, leave Brooklyn to go to Israel in the first place? Yeah. So, you know, it's really, I get goosebumps every time I tell this because it's just so out of my domestic world, you know, as a parent, just raising kids and I'm focused on that. But once upon a time, I was actually a teenager. (laughs) Right. And I grew up in New York City and I think the biggest challenge for me was not having a sense of direction and feeling very lost and aimless with the college scene and trying to, you know, at that age, you're so vulnerable and susceptible and you don't realize how much you are. And I didn't really know where to study, what to study. All I knew was that Serving in the IDF was not something I had thought about the Israel Defense Forces, but I had volunteered on my aunt's kibbutz the summer of 1989, which seems like ages and ages ago. And it made such a huge impact on me. I couldn't really shake it off. And so from that moment of learning a different culture and being surrounded by people all over the world, it felt so worldly and it was just so much more interesting than going to college and Mm -hmm. having that cultural experience. I think the biggest part of it was that I was looking for something out of myself, something that would take me and challenge me emotionally. And I, and I think part of it was just my relationship with my mother specifically was very rocky Mm. and very unstable And she really taught me how to stay small and how to be scared of many things. And she was very scared of many things herself. So I had to break away from that. So I think that was a big motivator why I decided to just drop the college scene, do something completely out of my comfort zone and, and go to Israel. Wow, that is pretty brave, especially being that young. <laughs> right, right. 
it was it was a very risky endeavor so you made this decision can you talk us a little bit more through your thought process about coming to to this yeah. decision yeah i i think about it a lot and i thought about it when i was writing my first memoir accidental soldier a memoir of service and sacrifice in the idf and the biggest reason was that and i and that people ask me you know because in israel you have to serve if you're a native israeli and you're in israel technically you're supposed to serve it's compulsory for men and women hmm. but as a volunteer and i didn't have to serve so people ask me in my talks you know well why did you serve or they ask me why did you call your memoir accidental soldier and i say i really wanted to get away from my mother right. and every time, like people are like breaking out into laughter and it, they, it sounds so funny but it's really the truth and that was my biggest reason is that I she had impacted me so much in girlhood growing up for so many years that it reached a breaking point to the point where I was just suffocated and 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 she really wanted me to you know she she her immigrant herself Uh, came to the United States very young. She was a child prodigy. And it was almost unheard of to like drop out of high school or sorry, college and right. finish. It was like you, you, she literally would say things like, you will be a nobody if you don't finish college. So you can imagine the stigma yeah, of how intense that felt. And so I was like, well, I'm going to rebel, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you know, because if you're, you're a parent and you're trying to help your kid make a decision and you see that they're kind of on the fence. It's sometimes pressure is even worse. Yeah. And I think that's what happened. It just broke. It yeah. Boiling point. You reached that tipping point. Okay. Yeah. And so that's when I left. Right. So you left indeed. And how does your, yeah. How does your arrival happen? How do you, How do you make way and settle into Israel then leaving so yeah. young? And it, it wasn't my country. Israel was my father's country. My father's a native Israeli, uh, born and bred. And it's all okay. whole different mentality. You know, you're going into culture. Mm. I, the only experience I had with Israel as an American Jew was, you know, those very short visits with family at age five, at age 12, and then sort of volunteering on my aunt's kibbutz and right it's very different these visits and then it all of a sudden you show up and you're completely immersed and living that, that right. life so it was a super duper challenging time and remember this is a time when there was no facebook no social media no like hey i'm stuck in blah 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 and you're on your phone cell phones right. this is like 30 and some odd years ago And and there was no, like, um, they have now lone soldier programs through Facebook for people who come and they don't have family. I mean, I had my father, oh, I didn't yeah. have my own parents, you know, so my support network really building yeah. it from scratch. And I had to right. find my way, even though I knew Hebrew and I could speak it somewhat fluently, or I could pick it up really quickly. I still internally, emotionally, I was like a mess. And it was yeah. just, you know, trying to figure out, luckily I was young, so that was in my favor, but I was still very scared because I, I 
thought if I couldn't make it, that I'd have to go back on that plane. And that was scary to me. Um, The Jewish agency paid for my flight. And so I felt like I had a commitment to prove my worth to them, you know, because I was a lone soldier about to get inducted, had no experience serving in the IDF, didn't know what that really meant uh, in the long run. Um, didn't have much cultural experience and awareness, was just a New Yorker. And all of this was like completely foreign to me. And and I had to really whip myself into shape pretty quickly. Yeah. And so how were you able to build this support group and actually make it through this whole whole experience, at least the first first few years? Luckily, Israel is it's not a country where you can't find a support outlet. It's just a matter of how. Mm. Uh, the country is very social yeah. by nature. So people by nature are, are open and willing to help. I think what really helped in the long run was that I was serving with a bunch of foreign recruits and we were all coming from different countries, including France and nice. South Africa and South America. We were all in Russia we were all in the same boat. And some of us had parents. Some of us didn't have parents in the country. We were all very different, but all in, in the same boat mm. together. So that helped a lot. Yeah. I, I do have to say that family did help, although it wasn't the same example for me. I had to really, you know, do more outreach and say, you know, I need help. And and it's mm. different. It's different because... Uh, you know, people don't always read your mind and know what you're feeling and thinking. So I had to, you know, make the effort, do personal outreach and, you know, say I need help or can I meet with you or can we yeah. do this together? So, I mean, there were there were pros and cons to being there on my own and having the support network. Israel, thankfully, is is a booming country and And there's a big brother, big sister mentality already existing in the IDF where people look out right it just took time for me to acclimate to that new landscape right and so what about the service itself can you tell us a little bit more about how it works what typical day looks like maybe i realize that most people don't have military service you know it's not exactly (laughs) knowing unless you are a military Mm. family or you know, you're military brats and you go from country to country. So it's really not something that most people have access to. And in the IDF specifically, it's a very different mentality than, let's say, the United States Air Force military. Right. My unit, the way my service was set up and the way I chose to serve is that I combined um, agrarian work, which means working on a kibbutz, which at the time was a very communal Mm -hmm. lifestyle with military service, meaning basic training, serving in on different bases, learning how to use a gun, going and doing military tactics and all these things. The reason why I chose that was that I wanted the support network of a kibbutz because it was so attractive to me when I did that little volunteer stint the summer before. So that, that was the reason, that was the appeal. Okay. And so maybe let's move on a little bit more around the kibbutz. Yep. I'd say you might need yep. to uh, detail a little bit more what a kibbutz yep. is, how it works. In Absolutely. 
The kibbutz has started uh, very early at the turn of the century. It was a co- it was a communal lifestyle. They were pioneers before Israel became a state, and they were very very idealistic. And their their job was to protect borders and intruders, and they really the land. And their job was to create communes, little farming communes so that people could exist together. And it was a very different value of togetherness that we don't really know. You know, we say we want to eat together, but this was a whole different type of lifestyle. It was a lifestyle. And the way it looks like is that everybody doesn't own anything at the time when it started. It's very, very pre-materialistic. But then when people started to get goods and, you know, um, cars and televisions and houses, nobody really owned those things until later on. It was really primarily established for for the values of what we say in Hebrew, yachad, or togetherness. And so everybody is singing together and working together. And mind you, before Israel became a state, it was very Zionistic, it was very pro-Israel. And so there was this need to settle the land, not just farm the land. There was a a real... What do you mean by settle the land? Israel is very much built on immigrants, like many countries. And they wanted to escape persecution from where they were coming from and, you know, discrimination. And so the identity and the... The appeal was to settle as Jews because this is our this is our country, yeah. and it was built from you know the biblical times and carried through and from generation to generation that this is our land, and we want to be in this country, and you know we no matter what you know and, and they knew that it, the work would be hard and they knew that the work would be challenging. It's almost similar to the pilgrims who came to the United States, and they escaped persecution in England. And they wanted to practice their religion freely. It's it's kind of similar to that. Only, okay. only the way that they set it up as a kibbutz is not the same. Right. So definitely a great sense of community and yeah, people really really living together. I, I guess that definitely helps this piece around integration and having this sense of family and support yeah. circle and peace. You know, because people wanted to the war that they were in and the and the strife to to create a new home you know and be free people and and people would pay lots and lots of money to come on boats to come to the to israel and it was a big um it was a big ordeal to get away from their countries and get exit visas and all that stuff so there's there's that challenge as well So once you finished your service, um, did you move completely 100% into the kibbutz then? Yeah, so a lot of the work that we did throughout the service was going from one kibbutz to another. And at some point, I made the decision that I really love the kibbutz and I wanted to kind of stay in it. So I tried to find different ways that would support my ability to stay in the kibbutz and not as a soldier. And the way found that was like, you know, renting a place, just, you know, just to kind of still feel that connection. Because I didn't feel like I wanted to live in a city after that, because it it was so cozy. 
and insular. There's a very insular feeling about it and very protective environment, uh, almost like a little bubble and, and have all your needs right. there. And you really don't have to make huge trips to go. Get out yeah. yeah. Um, so I tried very, very hard to find different lifestyles, different opportunities that would support my ability to stay on a kibbutz. So I did things like leadering uh, an American youth group and trying to stay on a kibbutz for this period of time. And then I was a student, so I rented a place and you know, I kind of kibbutz hopped from as many as I could. <laughs> Just because I didn't want to give up the lifestyle so quickly. And I wasn't ready to just live on my own in a big city where I would be anonymous. Right. And so is it easy actually to come in and say, oh, I want to work or live in this kibbutz? Or is there integration yeah. process? Or... Mm. I mean, if you're a volunteer, it's, it's pretty easy because they live the work is very much volunteer driven. I don't know about today because... Now everything's privatized, so people don't right. be the closest that they need volunteers is outsourcing farm work to Thai workers. But technically, if you want, at the time, if you wanted to, you know, live on a kibbutz, you would go through a certain committee, um, you know, if you wanted to be a member. I mean, it could be really bureaucratic. Mm. If you just wanted a thing, okay. like being a volunteer, then it was just a matter of finding the right kibbutz and... I think there's at the time there's like an agency and you can kind of go to that agency and I don't know how that it's set up anymore, but pretty much those were the choices, you know, you just place that you want to be, what part of the country you want to live in. Um, and you just follow the herd. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Okay. So which, uh, which area of Israel were you in? Yeah, I, Israel is a very diverse country. From the top to the south, uh, from the north to the south, it's only eight hours. It's very small. Mm. Half of it is desert. Half of it is not. So I was stationed in a lot of desert area. And then I was in a very beautiful area up north with lots of trees and waterfalls and um, oh. from the top to the bottom and the upper Galilee to all the, the different deserts that are bordering Egypt and Jordan and just very dry, arid, as opposed to right. you know skiing on the mountains and mm. so very very diverse climate. So basically, between the top to the bottom, it was like a matter of eight or nine different kibbutzims that we served on during um, my service. Oh, it was wow. quite a lot. We we just did a lot of different things, and it was it was a really fun experience. And so you, you mentioned when we had a call that you you settled down and you raised your family yeah. there. The last kibbutz that we were on was just about to turn and get privatized. Privatized for a kibbutz is almost like death to a whole community, a whole value system, a whole history. Because you have to remember these kibbutzim started, some of them early in the you know 1900s, and then 2010, you know, after 100 or so years, people are now saying goodbye. And so it mm. was one of those. And I think one of the last few ones in that area. And I raised my son there. I got married on literally on that kibbutz. 
And that's where I also met my husband, who's an Israeli born, who came to that kibbutz when he was also like an idealist, very much a pioneer, came from the city just to get away from the city, but also because he loved the lifestyle so much. And he stayed. And that's how I met him. And if he didn't stay, I probably wouldn't have having this conversation with you. <laughs> nice. So can you tell us a bit more around what happens when a kibbutz is privatized? Uh... It's, it's a sad turn of events. And everybody who lives in a kibbutz struggles with it, even the ones who want to vote for it. You have to remember that a kibbutz is just made out of made up of people and some of the people run committees mm. and different committees for different things. And so when a kibbutz becomes privatized, it first needs to get voted on a decision like that. It's not an easy decision because usually the older generation want to preserve the kibbutz and the integrity of the values. And the newer generations right. are looking for change and they in different ways. It's basically to keep the kibbutz economically healthy and right. to help the kibbutz thrive, but in different ways. I think a big part of what happens when a kibbutz becomes privatized, and that means technically that you no longer share under a communal living arrangement or a lifestyle, we would eat in the communal dining room, have meals free, oh. our laundry would be washed, we would get that for free, it would be folded, kids would be educated by kibbutz members, and you did not pay for that. Food was covered. For, you okay. had a kitty for to cover a, a little budget to cover for basic needs. Everything was taken care of. You never had to worry about anything. But everyone was like sort of working within the kibbutz and making things run smoothly. Exactly, and everybody was working for the common good. And so nobody owned right. a car. Nobody took a trip mm. abroad because nobody had the need for it and nobody got money to do that. So right. when you leave that environment and that lifestyle and you become privatized, essentially, basically you're saying, I don't want this communal lifestyle anymore. And you become very materialistic and greedy. Yeah. The whole value system exactly. changes. So now you want to own things and you, but that means you also have to pay for things. You have, you have money to right. pay for things and people who had never made money and never knew how much things cost, you know, the cost of goods, how much does a bagel cost? How much does a carrot cost? How much do I pay for my rent yeah. or my car or my gas? When all of that was taken care of, now they have to pay for every single thing. And they had to buy laundry machines and they had to buy dryers. So essentially you have to be on your independent and you're independently, um, the kibbutz is no longer responsible for you. You don't have to do anything to, do to help the kibbutz. Um, so you're living in the same place, but the place has completely changed because now everybody right. wants a salary. Everybody wants to make their own money. Nobody wants to be dictated how much they can make. They want to just have the freedom and the control to do it themselves. Okay. So at that point, then I guess people just have to start looking for jobs, but it must be terribly difficult when you've grown up in this environment to then start looking yeah. for a job. I, I told this to a writing instructor and she said, she used the word interesting. She said, wow, that's extremely interesting. And I said, wow, that's a really cool way of looking at it because when you're in that environment mm -hmm. and you've, 
you know, become accustomed to it. It's not interesting. It's very painful and stressful. Yeah. Um, but, but I appreciated that she, that she saw how interesting it could be. Like she was like, wow, that's so interesting how people can live together and then all of a sudden start to own their own things. And yes, conceptually it is interesting, but when you're literally you're saying goodbye to a lifestyle and then there's a lot of war, people just don't agree on certain things and, and to have your, to have a whole community vote on it and, and fight whether or not it's a good decision or a bad decision. And it's, it's very difficult, especially those who don't want to let go of, of what they, what they know. And that's their home, you know, you know, the ones who are, that believe that still believe in the kibbutz and the versus the ones that increasingly say, no, there's no kibbutz anymore. It, it's also part of it is just the economics of the country. You know, Israel is not a peaceful country. It, it has, unfortunately, hmm. a history of wars. And when you have war, you don't have economic security. That's part of it. So, right. um, these are things that we don't... You don't control. Yeah, exactly. So... One of the- yeah, you don't control them, but they have a huge impact on how you actually live. Yeah. So all this led you to move back to the U.S. then? Yeah. So in 2006, Israel had its next to the last war. It was the Israel-Lebanese War. It was 2006. And again, we literally had to leave our kibbutz because it was under siege. Again, something that many oh, people wow. don't, don't realize and no judgment. It's just mm. objectively, that's the way it is, you know. So we had to leave the the kibbutz and we just literally escaped our son was only two my husband and I had just married and we literally escaped to the center of the country and slept on beaches and in other people's houses because it was just not a safe place to be we constantly retreated to bomb shelters and it's it's like very traumatic so we needed get away from that and when we came back after 34 days of in that kind under those conditions we came back it was clear that the economics had really impacted that area of the country which is a war area like it can just happen and then it could you can have years and years of peace and then it can suddenly erupt so he was looking job and wasn't able to find one unfortunately and we knew that it was that the economics were not in our favor he was also not getting any younger and israel is not a country for young people uh, for older people unfortunately what is that because it's a country that that thrives on thrives on young people and young people's blood and their talents and their professions and they don't see value unfortunately in a person's experience and okay and i think part of it is just my husband's profession is not the most valuable of professions it's not high tech you know he's not in bioengineering and something very evergreen in israel and so he and unfortunately was not able to find the kind of job that he needed to make ends meet. So that was the biggest reason why we had to leave with a very heavy, heavy heart. 
Right. So you decided to make the move back to the U.S. Yeah. then? So the way it worked was that we just continually looked for jobs. We couldn't find one. And we were like, okay, we're going to look for other jobs in the country. We'll go far south. We'll we'll keep looking until we find something. And we'll we'll try to make it work, even if it's not in our area and you have to travel. Mm. And that, even that kind of decision didn't work in our favor. And it was... Yeah, you really explored we, every every option. Really, possible. really explored. I don't think we left any stone unturned. I don't, you know, I mean, he wasn't about to wash floors, but like literally whatever he could find professionally in his field as a buyer and procurement manager and, and years of working in different industries, we were hoping that we could make something work. At that point, right. we went to the U.S. Embassy in Tel Aviv and I filed for, um, I applied for a green card for him and that was it we had we had made our decision nice that was the turning point mm. so maybe let's move on a little bit to well this return yeah. and i know it's heartbreaking for you but how how did you live this reverse culture what were you expecting there and how did you make your whole and just make it work yeah You know, RCS, reverse culture shock, is not really understood and it's not common. It's rever it's culture shock that we usually throw around, right? And RCS is yeah. another term that the U.S. Department of State actually says that it's an emotional displacement syndrome. And that it happens when a person who has lived abroad for so many years no longer can find home in his or her own mother country. And that is, yeah. aside from feeling like, wow, I'm on a honeymoon coming back to the States when the reality really hit that this is really not our home home. It was yeah. clear that I was struggling with this emotional displacement syndrome called RCS. And Israel is a very um, traditional society, meaning that people spend a lot of time together And they're very social and they care about each other. I think being in a military society and having, you know, always enemies attacking you all the time, you have to look out for each other. You know, you can't be at war so within, mm. within the country. So people just demonstrate that by caring and showing, you know, sometimes in, in, in ways that one doesn't anticipate, but they're very demonstrative with the way that they show affection and care for each other. And they spend a lot of time with each other. It's very family-centered. It's very family-oriented. And those values are not part of the landscape here in the U.S. still. And, and right. so that was the biggest adjustment was that, you know, I come from a kibbutz and I'm Jewish. And we celebrated the Shabbat, which is, you know, our Friday, Saturday night. Mm be together holiday kind of and all of a sudden we had to understand what it means to be an american jew as opposed to being an israeli in 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 the united states in israel you have statehood to back you up you're israeli first and you're jewish second because israel is the land for right. jewish is the land of the jews it, um there's many ethnicities there but it's a jewish state in america by contrast 
you have all these different ethnicities and it's not a Jewish state. You have, you know, right. all the different countries and ethnicities here. So, yeah. So I was learning what it means to be an American Jew and where did the Israel piece come up? And all of a sudden I had given up my country to come to an uncertain future. My husband didn't have a job here. We came like literally immigrants with the clothes on our backs, um, just three suitcases, a one-way ticket. And we came to a, an area that we knew nobody and we had given up everything. And it was, it was heartbreaking at first because I, I realized like, oh, I can speak English, but I knew nobody and so the setup here was completely different. Yeah, it wasn't like you had left home. You weren't going back home. Yeah, really. exactly. So that it was a one-way ticket and we knew it, but we didn't know how hard it would be. And I think that's what made reverse culture shock so stressful is you have yeah. family and you have a job and you have a community and it's, you know, you've built time into that you know then it's a little bit easier to adjust but when you come into nothing and you know not nothing but you come into an area where you don't know anybody you don't have rituals or you know traditions and a history in that place it's very it challenges everything that you know and it just makes yeah. it even harder to find your connections and so you have to work very hard to to make that work again yeah, it's basically a completely new ex expatriation experience. Exactly. And so what helped you actually get through this these difficulties? Yeah. I mean, I cried a lot, I'll be honest. That was one of the challenges. I had to just like be very vulnerable. And, you know, I kept a journal. I wrote about the experiences. I'm a writer. So that was the way I processed and internalized things. And mm. Eventually, those writings would make their way into my expat memoir, that was on an individual and personal level. And then I slowly, I had to build my tribe up. Thankfully, my husband found a job very quickly within a few weeks of coming to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where we currently live. And that kind of like its right. own reward because he had suffered much, mm. hadn't found the job. This was like kind of the redemption that we were waiting for, the yeah. reward. And we're like, yay, at least we got you this. A big event. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> at least you so we can make it work here. Um, and so his, he was like already in that environment. I, on the other hand, didn't anticipate struggling so much. And I realized that what I had given up, I had missed so much. So I had to seek the tribe out for myself. We joined our local synagogue group that was, you know, across the street from us at the time. And we attended those events and socially we felt connected but within those events, I was also looking for the Israelis that I could feel connected to. And the more I could attend these Israeli type of events, the easier it became for me to feel less alone, less isolated, yeah. less alienated, and just more willing to find my tribe that way. I think the combination of both, and these are ongoing things. It's not like you do it for one year and then you just kind of let it go. And I think finally, the the biggest piece that most recently has helped was just Israeli cooking. And that, you know, I would find our home in the kitchen. 
cook yeah. things that were so flavorful that would bring up all the nostalgia and the memories and the tastes and the experiences of home. And to this day, we just keep doing that because we realize that that's the only way we could bridge these two oceans together, you know, and find yeah. home. Yeah, I think cooking is definitely an amazing way to, yeah, to find those memories and the, the feeling of, of home, especially in a culture like Israel, where there's a lot of meals are important, there's a lot of community yeah. and you, you really share. There's this notion of really sharing a meal with, uh, with people. Yeah. And France is a little bit like that as yeah. well, where you cook a lot and you share the meal. It's a precious yeah moment and I know when I was abroad when when we when a couple of French would be a bit low we'd always meet together and cook French French dishes yeah. together or have this really traditional meal and yeah. it always helps yeah it helps and and I'll just add that the United States is just a huge country it's huge you can't even imagine how mm. big it is I mean I can't even get over how big it is some days so I <laughs> I I use the kitchen to kind of minimize the bigness, you know. And when we came to this to this big huge island, you know, I like to call it this big huge island, it was like, you know, all these license plates from all over the, the you know, all these different states. And I'm like, where are these places? You know, it's like almost like a country. <laughs> and I'm like, I and so I think I think the reverse culture shock that you were mentioning and we were talking about before, it was so important for me to find something that could help anchor all of that displacement, you know, because I think with us, it's like we're here for a very long time and we don't know we're here definitely yeah. because we know that mm. if we go back, we'll have challenges, especially now in COVID. So we knew that this was like a commitment to the kitchen, you know, right. <laughs> to keep the kitchen going and the flames cooking. And that's like the thinking is just, how do we make this work? Yeah. Find a balance that, okay, this, the kitchen balances out all the rest and it works for me or. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Um, so before I wrap up, I'd just like to come back to Israel uh, very quickly on the recommendations yeah. piece. So all my to all my guests, I ask about one bar, one restaurant, and a carte blanche, so a place of your choice. Yeah, well, I love the Upper Galilee, which is where our last kibbutz was, and that was our home. And so I won't give up on saying that this specific area that is the Jordan River Strip, it cuts through various kibbutzim, but it's just so biblical in its references, but it's also so beautiful physically. And there's little waterfalls and you can go on promenades and go up and around and it, 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 it's, the strip of water, the ribbon of water that goes into, that feeds into the Sea of Galilee, which is the biblical place where Jesus was once walked on water. It has just a beautiful vibe to it. Um, that is one place that 
always comes up in my mind when I think about home and what I miss so much because I think that water reference is just stunning. Right. And mentioned one restaurant. I would have to go with the Thai village, the place where we both got married. It's a beautiful mm-hmm. place right on the banks of the Jordan River at the entrance of our kibbutz, which is kibbutz Stenachemia. It's probably a very long word. We'll link them in the comments. Yeah, I don't <laughs> want to get that wrapped up in there. Um, or kibbutz Chuliot. So these are just beautiful places that echo a lot of tranquility in nature. Nice. Well, I'll link all that yeah. in the different comments of the episode. Nice. And final question is, what is your song that yeah. sort of represents your your journey? It's funny that you ask this because I had always loved in Israel listening to Sting Englishman in New York. <laughs> <laughs> and I just would listen and enjoy the tunes. And I was like, wow, this is such a cool song. But then guess what? It suddenly resonated so truthfully. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's really me I'm just an English woman maybe or an American in Pittsburgh you know <laughs> so now I have two good reasons to listen to it only one is really truthful it speaks to my expat soul and the other one these memories I, I remember listening to it while I was working on the kibbutz you know picking apples in the or- in the orchards and I was just whistling and I think it was on my on my walkman you know and people don't know what walk yeah. I'd listen to it on my Walkman, put the cassette in, flip it, listen to thing, pick more apples, eat them, put them in my bag. Go, you know, it's just like the most peaceful, you know, no brainer lifestyle, just completely at ease with the world and listening to Sting. And now I'm like, now I really know what he's talking. About. I know what it means now. <laughs> oh my god, yeah. <laughs> yeah I'll, I'll link that song if you guys don't know it uh, definitely go listen to the words and it's exactly about it's a bit of a lost in translation in new york <laughs> exactly it really what it means yeah. but when you're outside <laughs> great well thank you very much i i enjoyed this chat it's very different to what we had but i learned loads about the whole culture in israel kibbutz which i knew very very little about it's it's highly interesting it's really really sounds like its own little bubble and i i can imagine the trauma as as soon as you leave that sort of bubble of it seems like such an aggressive uh aggressive world uh, outside of yeah it's definitely not the traditional or the typical sorry way of leaving a home you know sometimes people are forced mm. against their will to leave home but what happens we have yeah. to choose to leave unwillingly i think that's even more in some ways it's even more traumatic because you don't want to yeah you know you're mm. forced to because of persecution or war and and that's one thing um, when you don't want to, and you have no choice but to, or you kind of need to to save your family out of economics, it's almost akin to that scenario, yeah. but in in a in um in a more heartbreaking way because you, you you realize what you give up very quickly, you know. Yeah. Thank you. 
much for letting me talk to you and yeah. share this with you and your listeners. I know that it's a very different story, but hey, we all can learn from each other. So learning is good. Yeah. You're welcome. I, I find that highly interesting and uh, valuable and good to see a very different perspective and experience, especially. So Guys, thank you for listening. As usual, I will link everything in the comments. And if you enjoyed the episode, please put a rating on Apple Podcasts and stay tuned for the next one. Thank you. Thank you so much, Pauline, for letting me share with your community.